0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1047. Uh, Last week, we finished uh, studying through the book of Titus together, and after a few weeks of prayerful consideration, I decided to return to the Gospel of Matthew for a while and you may say if you're new to the church or have been visiting why Matthew 19 well years ago I started preaching verse by verse through the book of Matthew and I've preached the first 18 chapters that's why Matthew chapter 19 I would not uh, just randomly stand up and pick the passage that we're going to read together in a moment as you will seen and so it's the pattern and the practice of our church family to go verse by verse the majority of the time through books of the Bible and that's why we're in Matthew uh, chapter 19 and I want to say to you at the outset this morning there is no way in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to be able to cover every single nuance of the subject I would refer you back to sermons I preached in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teachings on this subject. They're entitled Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. And there are four of them. And I deal with a lot of the nuances that I want to deal with this morning. So I think I have your attention now. So uh, let's uh, begin reading in Matthew chapter 19, verse One, and I'm going to speak today on the subject marriage and the kingdom, and this is what God's word says. And now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished teaching on the subject of forgiveness, these things in verse number one, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This seemingly insignificant geographical change is actually very significant. As it marks a shift from the location where Jesus began his ministry to the region of Jerusalem and the cross where his earthly ministry would end with the ultimate act of forgiveness, his death on the cross. And as this transition in ministry takes place, Matthew tells us that large crowds still followed him and he healed them. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 is in response to various questions addressed to him by the Pharisees, by a rich young man, and by the disciples. And his answers to these questions continue the theme of kingdom living, which has been running throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew. And in this first question, Jesus addresses the most controversial subject of all. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. All of us, either directly or indirectly, have been affected by divorce. Whether it's a family member, a friend, a church member, the pain of this subject is near to every single one of us. Few things in life are more devastating than divorce And its impact on our culture cannot be overstated. Jesus' teaching on this subject in Matthew chapter 19 is not culturally acceptable. And many believe today that it is outdated. However, God's design for marriage has not changed. And His Word is still the authority on the subject. As a result, we have the responsibility as a church to hold intention, tension compassion for those who have been affected by divorce and courage to communicate the truth of Scripture. We extend compassion to those impacted by divorce by weeping with them, serving them, loving them, meeting tangible needs, being present with them comforting them and pointing them to the ever-constant presence of God and the ever-faithful Word of God. But at the same time, we must avoid twisting Scripture to say what someone may want to hear, and we must lovingly remind them of the truth of God's Word and the hope that we all have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage are kingdom issues. And in these verses, Jesus teaches us about marriage and the kingdom of heaven. And so would you notice with me, first of all, in verse number three, the Pharisees' perversion of marriage. And this is what Matthew writes. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now you remember, the Pharisees are Jesus' archenemies. They are the largest and most influential party of the Jewish religious establishment. And Matthew says that they came to Jesus to ask Him a question about divorce. But notice carefully in your Bible, in verse number 3, that the Pharisees' motive was not to discover God's will concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Rather, their aim was to test Jesus, and by testing Jesus, destroy him. Now, their question was practical, because it related to the responsibilities in marriage, the basis for divorce, and the grounds for remarriage. Additionally, their question was theological, as it pertained to God's intention for marriage, and how the law of Moses in the Old Testament related to that intention. Moreover, the question was political because there were opposing schools of thought among the Jews at the time on the question of divorce, as well as the fact that the question they posed took place in Perea, the area under the rule of Herod Antipas. You remember, he was the ruler who had John the Baptist imprisoned and eventually beheaded for condemning his unlawful marriage to Herodias, whom he had seduced away from his brother, Philip. Now notice also in the text, carefully, the question that they asked was not about the legitimacy of divorce. The question was about the reasons for divorce. You see, the Pharisees had become the leaning leading proponents of easy divorce, divorce for any cause. And so they had ulterior selfish motives behind this question. Now, their question centered around Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and the interpretation of those verses. And this is what God's Word says in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and that is the key to the text, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, where if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been deviled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for your inheritance. The focus of the Pharisees' question in verse number 3 was on the interpretation of the phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1, some indecency in her. The conservative schools of Judaism represented by Rabbi Shammai interpreted some indecency narrowly, referring to it as adultery alone, allowing for no other grounds in which a man can legitimately divorce his wife. But the liberal school, represented by Rabbi Hillel, gave the widest possible interpretation and taught that some indecency could apply to almost anything that a husband found distasteful in his wife. For instance, if a husband decided he he did not want to live with his wife anymore because she had a habit he didn't like, or if he didn't like the way she cooked his food, Or if she was simply growing old and wrinkly, he could give her a certificate of divorce and he could find a new wife. Now listen carefully to me, friends. This broader interpretation dominated the culture. It lowered the view of marriage and it made divorce so commonplace that most religious leaders gave up resisting it and insisted that certificates of divorce be issued to try to protect the women. Now it is against this backdrop that the Pharisees, in verse number 3, go to Jesus and ask Him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This question by the Pharisees was an attempt to trap Jesus into one of the schools of thought, thereby upsetting the other school of thought. And it was their intent to garner the attention of Herod, who would hopefully punish Jesus the way he punished John the Baptist by removing his head. This is the backdrop to this question. So we see, first of all, the Pharisees' perversion of marriage... And we see, secondly, in verses 4 through 6, the principles of marriage. Look carefully in your Bible. And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This answer is just like Jesus. It is nothing that the Pharisees expected. Jesus begins his answer to them by rejecting their supposition in their question. The Pharisees were looking at marriage and asking, how much freedom does a man have to break a marriage covenant? One side says that we have unlimited freedom and the other side says that freedom is only limited to serious offenses. But Jesus says, and this is important church, listen carefully to this next sentence. Jesus says in his answer that the discussion of divorce must always begin with the biblical principles of marriage. That before you can ever talk about divorce and remarriage, you have to talk about and examine the biblical principles of marriage itself. And here's the reality. Our focus should never be on how we can end our marriage, but rather how we can save our marriage and strengthen it. And so Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. And I love his question. Have you not read? You're the elite religious leaders. Do you not know what God has said about marriage? Oh, you've read the book of Deuteronomy. But have you read Genesis? Because that's where marriage begins. And instead of going back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the text in question, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And by doing this, Jesus was really saying to the Pharisees, Your argument is not with me. Your argument is with God the Father and His Word. That's why one commentator described Jesus' answer this way. Jesus Christ expressed no opinions where the revealed will of God in Scripture had already spoken. The pressure of changing times, fluctuating morality, majority opinions, relevance to culture, or political correctness did not influence his understanding or adjust his insistence on the truth as it had already been revealed in Scripture. And friends, what was true of Jesus must be true of you and me and the church today. So what does Jesus teach us about God's principles for marriage in verses 4, 5, and 6? Well, he teaches us four things. Look, I'm, I'm lifting them straight out of the text. In verse number 4, he tells us that marriage is a clearly defined union. He says, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. In the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, both male and female are in the emphatic position, giving the sense of the one male and the one female. In other words, God did not create in the beginning a group of males and a group of females who could pick and choose mates as it suited them. There were no spares and there were no options. It was Adam and it was Eve. And there was no provision or even possibility for an alternative spouse. If you didn't like Eve, you were out of luck. One man, one woman in the beginning. And for that very obvious reason, divorce and remarriage were never included in God's plans as an option. Additionally, would you look at verse 4? I cannot not say this this morning and i hope the younger members of the congregation are listening carefully to their pastor and looking at the bible god did not create two men and one woman he did not create two women and one man he did not create two men and two women he created one man and one woman that means there is no such thing as a group marriage. That means there is no such thing as a gay marriage. That means there is no such thing as a transgender marriage or any other variation from what God has established. Those perversions of marriage did not originate from God and they are contrary to His will and to his word. And listen carefully to me church. What God has created clear and distinct. One man. One woman. No one. No one. Has a right to blur and make cloudy. He's clearly defined it. Marriage is the one flesh union of one man and one woman. In a wholehearted mutual lifelong relationship. That is God's definition. Number two, look in verse five. It is a clearly designed union. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife. Now, since Adam and Eve had no parents to leave, the leaving of father and mother was a principle that was applied to future generations. And here's the key to this verse. It is the phrase, Hold fast in the ESV. It refers to a strong bonding together of objects. It's used to glue something together or to cement something together. And here's what Jesus is literally saying that Genesis says. That one man and one woman are to hold fast to one another. They are to be cemented together And this powerful phrase describing marriage expresses the consecration of a husband and a wife to one another as well as their consecration to God. Marriage, as God has always intended it, involves the total commitment and consecration of husbands to wives and wives to husbands and the consecration of both to God who is the divine author of their union. Number three, it is a clearly displayed union. He says in these verses, and the two shall become one flesh at the end of verse 5 and beginning in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The two shall become one. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4, husbands belong to their wives and wives belong to their husbands they belong to one another in a physical relationship and this one flesh union means that they are indivisible and inseparable except through death in god's eyes they become the total possession of one another they're one in mind, they're one in spirit, they're to be one in goals, they're to be one in direction, they're to be one in emotion, they're to be one in will, they are to be one physically. One man, one woman, spending one life together. And then finally in verse number six, it is a clear, clearly and divinely appointed union. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the principle is simply this, friends. God established marriage and God is the only one who can end a marriage. Marriage belongs to God, not man. John MacArthur summarizes these three verses saying this. From the very first marriage of Adam and Eve, God has joined together every husband and wife marriage is first of all God's institution and God's doing regardless of how men may corrupt it and deny it or disregard his part in it. Whether it is between faithful believers or between rank pagans or atheists or whether it was arranged by the parents or by the mutual desire and consent of the bride and the groom, marriage as a general social relationship is above all the plan and work of God for the procreation pleasure and preservation of the human race, whether it is entered into wisely or foolishly, sincerely or insincerely, selfishly or unselfishly, with great or little commitment. God's design for every marriage is that it be permanent until the death of one of the spouses. And Jesus's point is that marriage is always the work of God, whereas divorce is always the work of man. And that no man, whoever he is, or wherever he is, or for whatever reason he may have, has the right to separate what God has joined together. End quote. Marriage belongs to God. Now you see the progression of the text, don't you, friends? We see the Pharisees' perversion of marriage in verse number 3. We see the principles of marriage from God in verses 4 through 6. And then in verses seven to nine, we see the protection of marriage. Now look carefully at the text. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It is clear from the text in verse number seven, friends, that the Pharisees were not interested in the divine standard for marriage. Their sole focus and goal in this conversation with Jesus was on defending their own sinful, self-centered actions. And so, in verse number 7, to give support to their liberal divorce customs, the Pharisees appealed once again to Moses in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, asking, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now listen carefully to the next few sentences. With this question, the Pharisees, once again misrepresented Scripture just like they did in verse number 3. When you read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that text does not command divorce. And yet in verse number 7, the Pharisees say that Moses commanded divorce. Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, was giving a command with regard to a particular case of remarriage. The issue was not divorce in Deuteronomy 24. The issue was remarriage. Deuteronomy 24 neither commends or condemns the reason and the procedure for the divorce that is mentioned, it merely states it as part of the storyline. And so the only command given in Deuteronomy 24 relates to the issue of remarriage. And Moses says in these verses that there was not sufficient grounds for the first divorce of the woman referenced in the passage. Therefore, when she remarried, she became an adulterer and she was defiled. And if her second husband died or divorced her, she could not remarry again. The issue was remarriage, not divorce. And so the Pharisees in verse 3 and in verse 7 had the whole passage wrong. Now look at what Jesus does in verse number 8. After clarifying that the law of Moses did not commend, much less command divorce, Jesus affirms that Moses made an allowance for divorce. Do you see the text in verse 8? He did not use the word command because Moses didn't command it. He used the word allowance because Moses made an allowance for divorce. Why did he do that? Look at verse 8. Because of the hardness of the people's hearts that's the issue the hardness of the people's hearts this phrase denotes an attitude of resistance to and rebellion to god adam and eve the very persons on whom genesis 2 first focuses hardened their hearts against god They rebelled against His commands and they sinned against Him. And consequently, they experienced alienation both from God and from one another. And the hardness of heart is the issue according to Jesus when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The hardness of heart that husbands show to their wives and the hardness of heart that wives show to their husbands. And this all flows from a husband's hard heart toward God and a wife's hard heart toward God. And so Jesus says, the reason that Moses allowed people to get a divorce was because of sin and the hardening of their hearts against one another in the marriage relationship and against God. The hardening of the heart. Divorce took place because of sin. It took place because of the stubbornness of hearts. And it took place because of disobedience to God's Word. And Moses issued these instructions in Deuteronomy 24, not to make divorce quick and easy, but to make divorce a last resort in the most extreme of circumstances. The law was given because people were not adhering to God's purpose in marriage. And the law sought to discourage divorce and to protect the innocent in the divorce By establishing a provision of no return for those who went forward in rebellion against God and against his word. You could literally read Deuteronomy 24 this way it urged those seeking a divorce to think carefully about what they were doing because they would never be able to undo their decision. Think carefully about the decisions that you're making. And could I just say parenthetically, friends, when you're talking about marriage, divorce and remarriage, you should think carefully. You should think sober mindedly. You should think biblically. You should examine if there's hardness in your heart toward God or toward your spouse. And this is why at the end of verse eight, look at what Jesus does. See it in the text. I'm not making this up. At the end of verse 8, Jesus takes the Pharisees once again back to the book of Genesis and reiterates that divorce was never included in God's original design for marriage. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin and before sin spread to the whole human race, there was no hardness of heart. There was no rebellion against God. And therefore, there was no divorce and there was no need for the provision of Deuteronomy 24. It's all a result of our sin. The hardness of our hearts. One commentator gave a helpful illustration of what Jesus is pointing out here in verse number eight, and really in the entirety of the text. And I felt like it might help us get our mind around it. So I'm going to read it to you. Just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life, not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. So Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how you have an accident. He said, rather, when you drive a car, take care not to have an accident. But if tragically an accident occurs, this is how you deal with the accident. It's helpful. It's helpful when we think of this subject. Now look at what he does in verse number nine. Because this is the verse you've been waiting for. Jesus expounds on his interpretation of the indecency clause in Deuteronomy 24. And notice how he begins. He claims to be God. He says, and I say to you. And when he said that phrase, he was saying, I am God. And this is my commentary on the subject. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And with this statement, Jesus narrows the parameters in this discussion, allowing one ground for divorce, sexual immorality. So what does he mean by sexual immorality? Well, the word in the Greek is the word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography. It has a broad range of uses, but they're all used, listen carefully, to describe some form of sexual sin. And in the context of this passage, it refers to adultery, sexual immorality, pornea, pornography. And why does he do that? Because this one act, sexual immorality, is the one sin that tears apart the one flesh union that Jesus spoke of in verses 5 and 6. And according to Old Testament law... In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22, the punishment for adultery was death. And when the punishment for adultery was carried out, that ended the marriage. And you see what Jesus is saying, don't you? Sexual immorality can lead to the death of a marriage. And in this case, divorce. But now look carefully at verse number 9. Notice... Jesus says that divorce is permitted. He doesn't say it's required. It means that there's grounds divorce when this activity takes place. But a person who's been wounded by sexual immorality does not have to end the divorce. As we see pictured with Hosea and his marriage and God in his marriage to Israel. In those situations, there is opportunity to reveal the healing power of God's forgiveness. So it is permitted, but he doesn't say that it is commanded. Well, Pastor, did Jesus say anything else in this passage about other reasons for divorce? Well, you have the text in front of you, friends. Do you see anything else there? No. Well, does the Bible give other reasons? Yes, in first Corinthians chapter seven, verses 12 to 14, Paul makes an allowance for divorce and remarriage as an option for a believer who is deserted by an unbeliever. That's it, those two. Well, I, I, I know what you're thinking right now. Well, what about abuse? What about addiction to pornography? What about neglect? What about this? What about that? Can I tell you, I've been in ministry over 29 years. I've been your pastor for 19 and a half. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage are the hardest issues that come across the desk. So what are you to do with it? You're to take the two parameters that God has given you and you are to take the whole counsel of God and you are to plead on your knees for God to give you wisdom, to apply the truth of scripture correctly. Because if I've learned anything in all of these years, every single situation is unique and different because every marriage is different, because every husband is different, because every wife is different. So here's what I say to you. Remarriage is permissible when divorce is permissible. But divorce that is not permissible results in adultery if there is a remarriage. Now, in the context of this passage, Jesus's words were a devastating indictment to the Pharisees, because they were guilty of promoting adultery. And his words devastated them. How do you know that? Well, look at the text, they disappear. This section of scripture never mentions them again after verse nine. Jesus devastated them. In their sin. I found this commentators words to be helpful to summarize this interaction in the text. When you think about all the possible questions related to marriage and divorce and remarriage, I want you to think about Genesis and think about the gospel. Think about Genesis. Hold fast to one another and think about the gospel. Forgive one another. Think Genesis and think gospel and think the goal of both which is the same, that what God has joined together, let no man separate. So we see the Pharisees' perversion of marriage. We see God's principles of marriage. And we see the protection of marriage. And finally, in verses 10 to 12, we see the purpose of marriage. Look at your Bible. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this same, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Why would Jesus say these things back to the disciples? Well, it is highly possible that the disciples had the same view of marriage that the Pharisees did. And when they considered the weight and the demands of Jesus' words, they wondered, look at it in verse 10, if it was better if they should say single and never get married. And in response to their statement in verse 10, in verse number 11, Jesus says, Not everyone can receive this same, but only to those to whom it is given. And the word receive that he uses there means to make space for something. Metaphorically, it means to completely embrace an idea or principle with all your heart and mind so that it becomes a part of your nature. And Jesus is saying These teachings that I'm giving you are weighty. They're serious. And you need to make a place for them in your mind and your heart. So they become a part of your nature. And in response to that, the disciples say it might be better if we stay single. And by the way, there's many people in the younger generations who are coming to that conclusion today. And I'm going to speak to you about that in a moment. Now, notice what happens in verses 10 and 11. Jesus doesn't reply to the disciples with an apologetic for marriage. He doesn't try to talk them into marriage. What does he do? He changes the subject. Do you see it? He changes the subject from marriage to singleness. And in verse number 12, he talks about singleness. And he tells the disciples that there were three categories of eunuchs who, for one reason or another, cannot or do not marry. Look at verse 12. According to Jesus, some are born eunuchs with some kind of physical defect that renders them unable to have children and thereby usually rendered them unable to marry. Others were made that way by men. And Jesus was referring to castration for a special spiritual service that was a part of the culture. And then he says, still others look at the text who, for the sake of the kingdom of God, voluntarily choose not to marry. Friends, marriage is a wonderful gift from God it was one of the basic foundations and principles and gifts he gave when he created the world and I'm working on 29 years and I am a happy satisfied customer and I commend I commend biblical marriage to you it is special it is important and It is to be treated as such. But Jesus points out in verse 12. That as wonderful as marriage is, marriage may not be for everyone. He says in verse 12 that there are some who for the sake of devoting themselves fully to the service of the kingdom, feel as if God may have given them the gift of singleness which is an actual gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul refers to it. And for those who have been given the gift of singleness, they've been given the ability to stay pure and to live a full and satisfying life. And what I want to say to that is, you don't have to be married to live a full and satisfying life. God has different calls on all of our lives. And so if he's given you the gift of singleness, you can live out that gift of singleness to the glory and praise of God, living a full and satisfying life. And if he's given you the gift of marriage and the call to be married, you can live a full and satisfying life through that gift. But notice in verse 12, as Jesus talks about singleness, he points out that everyone is not able to receive this. In other words, everyone has not been given the gift of singleness. So what what do you do with that pastor? Oh simple. Simple. Those who cannot live a life of singleness and stay pure and stay effective for the kingdom of God, they should find a godly spouse and they should get married. And they should serve the kingdom of God through a full and faithful lifelong commitment to their spouse. So if you've not been given the gift of singleness, get married. And serve the kingdom through your marriage. If you've been given the gift of singleness, then stay pure and use your talents and your time and your treasure most effectively to advance the kingdom of heaven. Friends, don't you see it? Jesus is teaching us that the purpose in our marriage Listen, the purpose in your marriage is the kingdom of heaven. And the purpose in your singleness, the same, the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is so significant and the institution of marriage is so essential that it should be normal for some people to give up marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And it should be normal for other people to enter marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And so that in both your marriage and in your singleness, the kingdom of heaven is at stake. The glory of God is at stake in both, the picture of Christ is at stake in both marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness is about the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are we to do with this? Well, I have eight applications. Number one, let me talk first of all to those who have experienced the pain of divorce. This subject brings old and new wounds to surface. And I want you to know that I know who many of you are, and I prayed for you by name this week. Your faces were on my computer screen and in my Bible as I was studying this passage of scripture. So for those who've experienced the pain of divorce, would you remember today that your marital status is not your identity in God's eyes? That if you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, your heavenly father doesn't see you in your divorce. He sees you in his son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, dear friend, there is an ocean of mercy and grace for your bruised and broken heart. He sees you in his son. If you belong to him. And I pray that that reminder gives you great, great comfort today. Application number two. For those who are currently or have been the recipients of sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, perversion or abuse. The reason God is so serious in his word about marriage covenants is because He is so serious about His marriage covenant with you. And even if the marriage covenant in your life was broken, would you know today that the ultimate marriage covenant between you and God, if you belong to Him, is forever intact? And would you remember today that God lives with you daily, and He will carry on His covenant of love with you both now and for all eternity? And would you remember today, dear friend, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will never commit adultery on you. They will never abuse you. They will never take advantage of you. And they will never abandon you. Would you remember that today? Application number three. For those who have experienced divorce for an unbiblical reason, If you have not already, would you confess your sin and repent of your sin both to God and your former spouse? And if you're single, would you rely on the power of the gospel to glorify God in your singleness as you await the ultimate marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb where you will join with Christ for all eternity? And if you are remarried, Would you work to build a marriage that reflects the gospel and brings glory to God in your remarriage? Application number four. For those who have experienced divorce for a biblical reason and are single, would you trust God for your singleness and depend upon Him and His power to rejoice in your singleness and to heal you from the pain in your past? And if, by His grace, He leads you to remarry, would you display the love of Christ for His church? And would you display the power of the gospel in your remarriage? Now let's all take a breath. We're halfway there. Application number five. For those considering divorce, and I'm sure there's some in this room today who are considering it, Would you remember the preciousness and the power of the gospel? And would you ask yourself, do you have biblical grounds for divorce? If not, would you consider how in your marriage, with the help of the church and with the power of God, you can resolve the conflicts in your marriage, receive healing and forgiveness and restore your marriage? Would you do that? If you do have biblical grounds for divorce, Would you still consider the power and the preciousness of the gospel with a view towards extending forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration with the power of God and with the help of the church? Would you remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation in the most darkened, sin-filled heart, and it is the power of God in the most difficult and broken marriage? Friends, there is power in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus. You can't ever forget that. Application number six. To those who are married, would you love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you love them in such a way that shows the preciousness In the biblical grounds for which God has established marriage. Husbands, would you love your wives with a sacrificial, selfless, sanctifying love and take responsibility for the glory of God and for the sake of the kingdom of heaven in leading your marriage and loving your wife? Would you love her more than you love yourself? And wives... For the sake of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you respect your husbands? And would you follow their leadership? And would you honor Christ through building up your husband as the spiritual leader in his home? Would you be his greatest cheerleader and advocate? And watch him blossom in his leadership and care of your home. To those who are married... Would you ask God to soften the hardness of your heart and move towards your spouse? When I do premarital counseling, I always tell couples this illustration. God has called you to be one flesh. And this is what that looks like. You are to be like this as husband and wife. And anything that makes you like this is wrong. That's how you know something's wrong in your marriage. When you're not like this and you're like this, something's wrong. And based on the authority of this text, I will say to you this morning that if something's wrong in your marriage, the root cause is the hardness of hearts in the marriage. It's not what I'm saying. It's what Jesus said. And the only antidote to the hardness of heart in your home is to kneel before your Creator and your Maker and your Redeemer. And humble yourself under His mighty hand and allow Him to soften your heart. I say to you, sir, why do you want to keep being so hard to your wife? She's a precious gift from God. Why wouldn't you want to make her feel like she's the most important person in the world to you next to Jesus Christ? Wives. Why would you want to crush your husbands by the way you talk about them? And then you wonder why they can't lead. Hardness of heart. So if you came in like this today to church in your marriage, God's calling you to be like this. This is sin. Application number seven. If you're single... And believe that God has given you the gift of singleness. Would you give more of your time, more of your talents, and more of your treasure for the advancement of the gospel? That's the purpose for singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, you don't believe me? Go home and read it. It's the purpose for singleness. To more advance the gospel. And if you're single, and you don't have the gift of singleness, listen to your pastor. You don't have the gift of singleness. Would you trust God that in His perfect time, He will bring the one He has for you into your life? And would you stop pursuing and forcing something to work that is against God's will? And I say to you, young singles, if you are dating and thinking and pursuing someone who's a non-Christian and you're a Christian, that is sin you're disobeying God and you're forcing something that in the end, this text is warning you about because it'll never work. Never. Don't force it. Trust God. He created you. He knows what your needs are. Believe that He'll bring that one into your life. And in the meantime, While you're waiting for that one to come into your life, would you by God's grace pursue a life of godliness and maturity so that you'd be ready for marriage? Oh, young man, quit coasting. Quit just strolling along. Get serious about godliness. Get serious about maturity. So you're ready to lead. You're ready to love. You're ready to take on more responsibility. Don't be like the rest of the world that's coasting. Be different because God is doing something in your life. But that brings us to eight. And you're probably really glad. I'll tell you, I'm really glad too. I'm ready to get off the hot seat. I want you to remember that all of this teaching comes right on the heels of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. And in that parable, Jesus taught his disciples in us to forgive extravagantly. And the implication is that for the sake of the kingdom, we're to work and pray for reconciliation in our marriages where possible. Divorce is possible, but because of the gospel, it doesn't have to be inevitable. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness are at the heart of the kingdom of heaven. And for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, you and I must receive Jesus's words as the final authority on these matters. And we must make our marriages and our singleness a picture of the truth of God's kingdom. And we must extend compassion to those who have been scarred by these issues. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word is life. Your word restores our souls. Your word revives our spirits. Your word renews our mind. Your word strengthens us. And we pray today by your grace that you would use your word in our lives. And Father, we are mindful that there are so many different situations represented in this room. Only heaven knows. And so we entrust these words, God, to you through your spirit to bring application, to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring restoration. Would you comfort those today, God, through your mercy and grace who are crushed and hurting? Would you strengthen those who are afraid? Would you heal those who are wounded? Would you restore homes and marriages? Would you move husbands and wives toward one another today? Would you build your church and your kingdom for your glory? for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.